Okay, so we'll get started. Um, like Amy said, we're going to be discussing Tifilah prayer for the next few weeks. The reason that we picked Tifilah was because no matter what level a person is on or no matter what background you have, prayer is always something that we're willing to improve, that we're willing to, we want to understand it better. Um, we always want to look for new insights into our prayer. So we felt like prayer was something that was very relatable to many, many people. And I think the reason for that is that prayer is something that we take with us throughout our lives. We get our sidurim from when we're in first grade or in kindergarten, and then as bar and benot mitzvah, we get our sidurim, and our prayer is always, we're always growing with it. It's a constant in our lives, and we take it with us from when we're very young into our childhood, into adolescence, into adulthood. It's something that's always with us, always changing, um, and, and really kind of grows with us. And we're always looking to grow our experience with prayer. So with that, the way that we pray today did not always look that way. So where did this concept of prayer come from? What did the earliest people who prayed in Tanakh, what did their prayers look like? Where did this concept start? So I want to go all the way back to the Torah to our early, early Avot. And I wanna, look out, I wanna look out what they did and slowly we'll get to, not today, but eventually, we'll get to what our tefillah looks like today. Um, the source sheet is not, I'm not necessarily going to read every word on the sheet. It's more of just a visual for, to kind of guide us, um, to guide you. I know I like to always have a visual and you know, see what sukim are being read. So um, feel free to refer to it, feel free to not refer to it. Um, the English is also all there if you need it. So the first person that we have, right? We have Abraham praying to God when he, when he goes to Gerar, the city of Gerar, with his wife Sarah. And Sarah is kidnapped. And she's taken captive by the king. And Hashem brings a sickness onto the people because they took Sarah captive. And Avimelech comes to Abraham and says, well, what's going on here? What'd you do? And he prays for the people to get better. Right? The language here is, Abraham, Abraham prays for the people to get better. Next example that we have is Yitzchak. Yitzchak prays with Rivka. The context here is we know that Rivka, his wife, was in Akara. She was barren. She could not have children for a nice amount of time. And Yitzchak prays for his wife to have a child. The next example that we have is Yaakov. When Yaakov is leaving the house of Lavan, we know that he hears Esav, his brother, who previously wanted to kill him, is coming to meet him. And he's coming to meet him with 400 people. And that's a lot of people. 400 people, that's significant. That's an army. And Yaakov is afraid. And he prepares himself for his meeting with his long-lost brother who wanted to kill him. Um, and part of that preparation is he prays. And he says, he tells Hashem, Hashem, I'm so small. Thank you for all of the chasadim that you've done, that you've done for me and, and everything that I have. And he, re and he reaches out to God and he says, please, Hashem, I'm afraid. Please, Hashem, save me. Save me. The next example that we have is B'nai Israel, Perak Bet of, of Shemot, when the slavery is 
being discussed. And we know that Bnei Israel were enslaved and Paro enslaved the people for a very long time. Um, and, and finally, they, they call out, The English here is the, the children of Israel sighed from labor. I don't love this translation. There's English translation always vary, and sometimes it's very hard to, to translate from Hebrew to English accurately. Um, I would not translate as side. Side kind of sounds like, oh, I'm working hard, you know. Um, really is more like they were groveling. Um, and they cried, they shouted to God, and their, their cries reached God from all of their hard labor. The next couple of examples that we have of people who prayed, um, I'm at the bottom of the page and then the top of the next page, is Ha'atiru el Hashem Paro tells Moshe Naharon in many of the makot, the makot, we know, right, the Moshe asks Paro, please take, you know, send Bnei Israel out of Egypt, and Paro says, you know, no, and uh, Hashem brings a makah, and Paro does not like the makah, he wants the makah to go away, and he says, he tells Moshe, Moshe, please pray that this makah goes away. So the two examples I brought were from Tzvardeya, or please let the, all these, these frogs go away from me, and let the, and the next one was in the hail, in the barad, please let it stop hailing. Um, but he, this happened really throughout all, all Eser Makot, where Paro requests that Moshe pray to God for the removal of the makot. The next one is Moshe. This one is probably the shortest prayer that we know of, the shortest but very, very powerful, when his sister Miriam is afflicted with tzara'at and he prays, Vayitzak Moshe Hashem. Moshe cries to Hashem and he says, Kil la, please Hashem, make her better. Moshe cries out to Hashem on behalf of his sister. The next one that we have, and this Perak Aleph of Shemuel Aleph could probably be a class all in itself. Um, I'll resist the temptation to go into each and every pasuk because it's so, it's so enjoyable and there's so much to learn from it. But um, the example is Chana. The example is Chana. Um, Chana was the wife of Elkanah, the father of Shemuel Hanavi, Shemuel the prophet. Elkanah had two wives, Chana and Penina. Penina had many children. Chana did not have children. Very similar to situation um, as Yaakov with Rachel and Leah. Right when Leah had many children, Rachel did not yet. So we have the same. There are a lot of parallels to Elkanah and Chana and Penina. And finally, at one point, Chana is fed up with her situation, and the Psukim tell us marat nefesh. She has a bitterness in her soul. palel, and she goes to pray to Hashem. she's crying. <coughs> Another instance of, of, of a, we see an individual reaching out to God. Now, but it's interesting that in all of these examples, we don't necessarily have the words that they said. We just hear that they prayed. What did they pray? We don't know. With Moshe, it often tells us, Moshe, kelna, rifanala, right? But in, in other examples, we, we don't. Chana, we actually do. We have a, a lot of what she said. But Abraham, for example, Yitzchak, for example, we don't know what they said to God when they prayed. We just know that they prayed. It's almost as if what they said is not significant, but, but the fact that they, they reached out to God in that moment is significant. And the last example that we have is Revit Palel Yonah. We all know the story of Yonah. Yonah was swallowed by the whale. And in the belly of the whale, Revit Palel Yonah El Hashem, right? He prays to Hashem because... Presumably, it's not pleasant to be in the belly of a whale. 
So he prays to God to rescue him. So we just went through a, a, a nice list, not an exhaustive list, but a nice list of people, individuals in Tanakh who prayed. What do you see? What's the common denominator here? What do all of these examples have in common? They were in trouble. They were in trouble. Yes. They reached out to God in their moment of trouble. Good. Okay. They, they needed God. They requested that God save them from their trouble. Now, to complement this, I want to look at uh, a definition given, a definition of prayer given by the Mabit. The Mabit is Moshe ben Yosef Mitrani. He is a Sephardic 16th century rabbi. Um, his family was actually from the, uh, was thrown out of Spain in the Inquisition. And after Sp they were thrown out of Spain, they actually ran away to Saloniki, Greece. Um, the Mabit was born in Greece, and when he was 18, he moved to Tzfat in Eretz Israel. and over there he was a very prominent rabbi, he was a prominent posek, um, he was the good friend of Rabbi Yosef Karo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, which is our code of Jewish law, um, and he engaged in a lot of, of discourse regarding halakha, very, very prominent rabbi. He wrote a book called the Bet Elohim. It's divided into three sections. The first section, he talks about prayer. And in the beginning of the prayer, I'm on the bottom of page two, where it says meaning of prayer. In the beginning of, of the book, he says, I want to now give a definition for the concept of tefillah. And he says, the right definition of the con for the tefillah conceptually is it's a request from God. It's when, when a person is in need, but it's It's not something that the person can control. The person is in need, but he can't control his circumstances. He needs an intervention from God. So we said that all of these people who reached out to God in prayer, Hana, Moshe, Yonah, Paro, Avraham, Yitzchak, right? All of these people, they were praying under circumstances that they couldn't help themselves any longer. They needed an intervention from Hashem. They needed, they were, this was the last resort. And, and that's especially evident from the story of Hana. Um, but I said, we're not going to go into it. So we're not going to go into it. But it, it's, it's a last resort. It's, there's nothing else more for them to do, but they need to turn to God. And that's what the Mabit here is saying, that tefillah is about a request that a person has of something that is not in their control and they're looking, they're, in, they're seeking divine intervention. That's how he defines the concept of tefillah. Now, that's great. So we have a conceptual meaning of tefillah, and it fits very nicely with what we've seen so far in terms of people in Tanakh who have prayed. But what about the word? Where does the word tefillah come from? What's that? What's the shorish? What's where does that come from? So, in order to understand that, we turn to the Radak. Um, I don't have the text of the Radak because I couldn't get it digitally. And to photocopy the book, it's very not reader friendly. The letters are really small. The print is not so great. So, I'll I'll, I'll summarize. The Radak was Rabbi David Kimchi, a 12th century. A biblical grammarian, that was his area of expertise. He wrote this Sefer HaShorashim. It's a book of 
um, well, uh, many words and shorashim that we find in the Torah. He also wrote some commentaries. He wrote a commentary on Bereshit. Um, he wrote a commentary on Tehillim, which we use a lot, which um, is very significant for him because being a biblical grammarian, right, Tehillim has a lot of difficult words and it also has a lot of imagery that's very flowery. So really his insight um, is, is very useful when, when you learn Sefer Tehillim the Radak. He also wrote a commentary on Navi, um, but the Sefer Harashim is very helpful in understanding words, especially words that we might not necessarily come across every day. And what he says is that the, the root word of tefillah is the word pilil, and he gives a couple of examples that which I'll go through. And the word pilil connotes mishpat, connotes judgment. Mishpat v'diyun, he says. It connotes uh, judgment and counsel. And he brings, every time he defines a word, he brings examples of pesukim where that word is, and you see how his definition fits in, in the context of the pasuk. So a couple of examples that he, that he gives, and I have them here on the paper. So in, in, in Sefer Shemuel, when Eli, who is the Kohen Gadol, finds out that his two sons are not really behaving as the sons of a Kohen Gadol should be behaving. And he goes to rebuke them. And he says, essentially, stop doing what you're doing. And the pasuk, one of the psukim that he uses in his rebuke is, if, if a man does something wrong to his friend, a judge can judge. Here, Elohim the kind, means a judge, not God. Right? Somebody, like, somebody can mediate between those two. But, if a person sins against God, who is going to judge that? Who is going to intervene? Right? So we see here the, this word, pilel and yitpalel, meaning judgment. Another, another example he brings is from Tehillim. Um, the, the context of the chapter, I think, is going through some um, events that, that happened in, in Tanakh, in, in Torah, and Jewish history. And this pasuk accounts the, when Pinchas um, kills the high priest of Shevet Shimon, when the Jewish people are in the desert, and they encounter the Midianite women, and many of them begin to intermarry. And the high priest of Shevet Shimon is publicly marrying the Midianite princess and Pinchas, in an act of, of zealousness, kills both of them. And the pasuk says, Vayamod Pinchas, right? he, he stood up and executed justice, and the magefa that Hashem sent a, a plague that was killing people as the, this assimilation was happening, um, and the plague stopped. So we have this word, very similar to tefillah, meaning that he, he judged and he executed justice. Another example that we have is when Yaakov sees Yosef uh, for the first time after he believes that Yosef has been dead, um, that he was killed by a wild animal when he was actually really in Egypt and he's king. And he tells Yosef, Reo panecha lo pilalti. I, I never thought I would see you again, meaning, lo pilalti, I never judged myself worthy of ever being able to see you again. So we see this root pilel fits very nicely with, with this, this connotation of judgment and counsel and people being judged. So how does that fit with prayer? How does that, this root word of judgment fit into tefillah? How does that fit? Well, we want to we get favorable judgment from God. Right. 
Right. So when we're praying, you know, we're hoping that he judges us, judges us favorably and, and answers our tefillah. Exactly. Right? We hope that God judges us favorably and answers our tefillah. And for, further, if you notice, the word lehit palel, to pray, is reflexive. Right? Like it's a goes back on you. And any English teachers in the room? He, yeah, it's, that's, the, that's the, the, the form, is hitpael, it's reflexive, right? Reflexive, like it goes back on you. So the word hitpael, it's like your, your, it's prayer is, it, it's for the person. We're praying really, Hashem doesn't need our tefillah, right? We know that, Hashem doesn't need anything. But we need our tefillah, and what we need is for Hashem to grant us our request and to find us worthy of our requests being granted. We want Hashem, as Amy said, right, to judge us favorably and to grant us our request. So, so far we have seen people calling out to God um, in their time of need and asking God to intervene and judge them favorably in order to grant them their their request. I want to look at another mode of communication that we saw, that we see um, in the Torah, and then we'll connect the two. Okay, so I'm on page three, number four, another look at communication with God. So, again, we're going to go back to Abraham. And the context here in this example is in Parashat Lech Lecha, when Hashem promises, when Abraham goes to Eretz Canaan, right? Lech Lecha, he used to go to Eretz Canaan, and Hashem promises that this land is going to be for your children. And after that, Abraham builds a Mizbeach, he brings a korban, he brings a sacrifice on the Mizbeach. Hashem, right? He, he brings a Mizbeach in and to call out to God after God tells him, I'm going to give you and your children this land. The next one we have where Abraham is coming up from Egypt. And in Egypt, he went to Egypt because there was a hunger in, the, in Eretz Canaan. And he went to Egypt to get food. And in Egypt, Sarah is, is kidnapped, very similar to what happened in Gerar. Right? Egypt actually happened first. Um, but but he, when he comes back, right, he, he goes to the place where he previously built a Mizbech, brings a sacrifice, right? El Makoma Mizbech. Among Parak Gimel Pasuk Dal, the last Pasuk where it says Bereshit Parak Gimel, El Hamakom, El Mekom Hamizbech, Asher Asa Sham Barishona, Vaikra Sham Abraham Beshem Hashem. He goes back to the place he built a Mizbech, and Abraham calls out to God, coming back from Egypt. The next example that we have is when Yaakov is running away from Esav. This time he's running to Lavan, not away from Lavan. But he's running away from Esav initially after he steals the Bechorah and he knows Esav wants to kill him. And he stops and we know the famous story of the dream with the ladder and the angels going up and down. And when, after Hashem appears to him, he builds a Mizbeach. He builds a Mizbeach, brings a sacrifice and calls out to God. Page four. Okay. Um, we have Yehoshua. We have the, the context here is in Sefer Shemot, after the Jewish people leave the desert, leave Egypt, and they're in the desert, we have, there's, they're attacked by Amalek, and there's a war, and the, the Chumash tells us, Rabbi Chalosh Yehoshua at Amalek, Yehoshua finally defeats Amalek, and the result of that, right, Vayiven Moshe Mizbeach, Vayikra Shemo Hashem Nisi Moshe 
to to call out to Hashem after this war with Amalek, build the Mizbeach, calls out to Hashem. So we saw before how we had individuals calling out to Hashem in their time of need. Now we see a different mode of communication. What's the common denominator here? What seems to be the common theme here besides for building a Mizbeach? Gratitude, right? Hoda'ah. So they're, they're, they're thankful. They're thankful that they came out of either their bad situation or they're thankful for a good thing. They're thankful to God. They're building a Mizbeach and they're, right, Mizbeach, they're, they're, brilled, they're giving a korban um, and calling out to God that way. So before we had calling out to God in a time of need, now we have calling out to God in gratitude. But both, we see that both ways we're establishing communication with Hashem. So how are these two concepts, are these two modes of communication connected? If so, how are they connected? Um, I turn you attention, your attention to, and of course I'll, I'll really just summarize it, um, number five, the Gemara in Masechet Ta'anit. And the Gemara brings a Midrash. And in this, in this Midrash, Abraham is in conversation with Hashem. And Abraham tells Hashem, Hashem, what happens if my children, the Jewish people, they sin very badly? And they sin to a point where they can't, you know, how could they be forgiven? What happens if you want to destroy them? Like you destroyed all of mankind in, in the flood. And Hashem says, don't worry, I'm going to have a mode of forgiveness for them. They're going to bring korbanot. And through korbanot, they're going to be forgiven. Abraham says, that's really nice, Ribono shel olam. That's nice, Hashem, right? That's great when the Beit HaMikdash was here and we had the opportunity, we have the opportunity to bring Korbanot and the Mizbeach, but when Beit HaMikdash is going to be destroyed, Abraham knows that eventually Beit HaMikdash is not going to be around and they aren't, there aren't going to be ways for the Jewish people to bring Korbanot and to give sacrifice. So what's going to happen then? Amar Lo Hashem says, I already established a way for them. When they read the passages depicting the korbanot and depicting how they are going to sacrifice the korbanot, it's as if they brought the korban themselves. All they have to do is read these passages of bringing the korbanot, and it's as if they actually brought the korbanot themselves, and I will forgive them. So even in the absence of korbanot, we see here from this midrash, the, the, the midrash quoted by the Gemara, that Hashem promises Abraham, even in the absence of korbanot, B'nai Israel will still have a way to be forgiven, right? And, and the, the forgiveness is going to be achieved by them reaching out to God in this very specific way of reading about the korbanot, and that's going to be their forgiveness, right? So what can we see about our relationship to korbanot today, right? Korbanot, we don't have, obviously we don't have korbanot today, but we're still connected to korbanot, and in a sense, it's still a mode of communication. And, and the way that, that it's a mode of communication is that it's in our prayers. We, we read the korbanot, we read about the korbanot, and it says if we gave korbanot. It's another mode of communication with Hashem. Now, is there ever a time where these two things have coexisted together in Tanakh? And there definitely is. Um, to, to look at that, I want to turn your attention to 
I'm on number six on the bottom of page four. Um, we're going to look at the coexistence and we're going to see how there was korbanot and prayer at the same time. So chapter eight of Melachim Aleph is when is after the building of the first Beit HaMikdash, built by Shalomo HaMelech. And in chapter eight, it's the inauguration day of the Beit HaMikdash. And on the inauguration of the Beit HaMikdash, Shalomo has this beautiful prayer that he says, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long prayer. I don't, I don't have the whole prayer here because, like I said, it's very long, but it's a very beautiful prayer. Um, and in this prayer, he expresses his hope for what he wants from the Beit HaMikdash. What's, what's my goal here in building the Beit HaMikdash? What do I really want this place to be for the Jewish people? And he opens up his prayer. He actually, and by the way, he's standing right next to the Mizbeach. Okay? It says in, it says in, in Pasuk Afek. Um, he's standing right next to the Mizbeach. And he tells Hashem so nicely, he says, right, Hashem, the, the heavens can't contain you. Is it really possible that you're going to dwell in this little house that I built you? And the Ben Hamidash was not a little house. Shilamo was known for his very luxurious lifestyle for himself. And he did no less for the Beit HaMikdash. It was the, the, the Parakim in, in Melachim Aleph depict how, just how luxurious he built the Beit HaMikdash. He really used the best of the best. So when he says, you know, this little house, he's, he's being modest. But he says, no, obviously, right? Hashem is not going to come down himself and, and live in a house. Even the heavens can't continue. So what? what's, what's, what's my goal here? My goal for this Beit HaMikdash, right? Upanita el tefilat avdecha ve'el tchinato. I want my goal is for you to pay attention to my tefillah in this place and to my request that I pray here before you. And what's what's the request? I want you to, to pay attention to my prayer that I'm praying here and my prayer is that you pay attention to the prayers of the Jewish people when they come to pray here in this Beit HaMikdash. So we, he's talking a lot about prayer and he's, his, his, his hopes that he's expressing is that the Jewish people come to this place and use this as a place of prayer and that Hashem have like a special... Um, a special hashgacha, like a special, pay, he's paying extra close attention to this place when when a person comes to pray. And by the way, he 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 doesn't say it exclusively to the Jewish people. He he makes leaves it open um, to to really everybody to the whole world, and which is like very consistent with Shalomo's time period. He had many people, many kings from different nations coming to visit him. Um, so he just says, I want this place to be a special place for people to come and pray where you listen to their prayer. This is where we got the concept of a big Knesset or Makom Kavua to pray. Um, Makom Kavua to pray we get from uh, Avraham. Well, really, we get it from all the Avot. But yeah, the, I mean, the concept of a Beit Knesset is similar to the Beit HaMikdash, but different in that it's not, there's not one central place. Right, that's like where we. That's 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 the huge one of the big differences that happened when we lost the Beit Hamikdash. When we had the Beit Hamikdash, it was like one central place of worship, and then when we lost the Beit Hamikdash, we had the shul to kind of sort of be like a mini Beit Hamikdash, but 
you know, it's not centralized. It's there's a lot of shuls, but it definitely it's is central to the people that live around. It. Yes, yes, one hundred percent central to the people that live around it, and central really to religious life. Um, and then later, it was really the yeshivot that became central to that. So it's you know, really depends on the community. Um, he, here, I, I would say that really our shuls are more central to religious life, but in Israel, it's not necessarily the case. So we have right, we we have Shalomo in the Beit HaMikdash, and, and his hope is that the Beit HaMikdash is, it becomes a place for prayer. Now, like I said, I didn't include his whole prayer, so you could either take my word for it or look at Perakset in Melachim Aleph, which is a very enjoyable chapter of Tanakh to read. In all of these, all of his expectations of, for the Beit HaMikdash, he never mentions any sort of korbanot. Any sort of avodah, any sort of korbanot is not mentioned in his hopes and dreams of what he wants the Beit Hamikdash to be. Now, there are two mizbechs in the Beit Hamikdash. The Beit Hamikdash is very involved in terms of work, right? We know all, most of Sefer Vayikra, right? It's talking about the Mishkan, which was like the portable Beit Hamikdash in the desert. But every everything that they did in the Mishkan transferred over to the Beit Hamikdash. It was a very busy place. The Kohanim were constantly bringing korbanot and doing things, so not one mention of, of korbanot and, and that sort of like worship that was within the Beit HaMikdash. Like, it's, it sounds funny, but the reason, that, that concept of, of the korbanot and the avodah, that's, everyone knows that that's part of the Beit HaMikdash, but perhaps the Beit HaMikdash being a place of prayer, Maybe that is not so intuitive. And Shalomo is saying, I want this place to be a place of prayer. I want people to come here and connect to God in whatever way that is. Whether it's through being a korban, but perhaps more importantly or, or, or more easily, I want this place to be somewhere where people come to pray to more easily connect to God, right? Korban is very involved. There's a lot of steps. You need a kohen. Um, Prayers, anybody can come and pray. Right? Anybody can come and pray. The next um, place that we see this connection very, very strongly is again going back to Hana. And when Hana, when she's coming to pray with her, the bitterness in her soul from her situation, she has no children. Her, the other wife is tormenting her for having no children. Um, she's married to this, this very nice man who says, don't worry, I'm better for you than 10 children, which was like probably not a helpful response, not something she wanted to hear. Um, but when she goes to pray for herself and ask for children, she goes, where does she go? She goes to the Mishkan. She goes to the place where they bring korbanot and where all of this action happens, and that's where she goes to pray. So we see this connection between korbanot being a mode of communication to Hashem, we see prayer being a mode of communication to Hashem, and we see that there's a connection between the two. In the place where we use korbanot to communicate with God, we also go pray to God, right? There's a connection between the two. The Gemara famously has a debate in terms of why we pray. What is prayer, what does it correspond to? And I'm sure you all know this debate, right? Is it, does it correspond to the Avot, who established, right? We know Abraham, Tikan, Abraham established Shacharit, Yitzchak Mincha, Yaakov Arvi. 
So do we pray because the Avod established it? Or do we pray because our prayers correlate to the different korbanot that were given throughout the day in the Beit HaMikdash? Korbanot were given also in Shacharit, Mincha, and Avi, right? Shacharit is keneged korban shel shachar. Mincha is keneged the, the korban of ben ha'arbaim. And Arvit is a little bit different. It's like the limbs and the fat that was kind of hanging out left over. Um, so that's why halachically Arvit has a different status, but it doesn't matter, right? It's still three prayers for three points of the day. Um, corresponding to the korbanot. So the Gemara says, which one is it? And they, the, the two rabbis debate their points of view, and essentially, the conclusion is that it's both. We pray because the avot prayed, but we also pray as a substitution for korbanot. We see that really korbanot and, and prayer are connected because they're both aspects of communication with God. Korbanot established, right? Korban milashon karov, milashon close. Right? We're bringing ourselves closer to God through korbanot. And we're bringing ourselves closer to God when we pray. So essentially today, because prayer is our substitution a little bit for korbanot, we, it's, it's our mode of communication with God. Right? That's, that's what we achieve when we pray. It's our line of communication. So we saw today that prayer has existed way before our sidur and structured prayer. We saw that the avot and significant characters in Tanakh have used prayer to reach out to God in their time of need. It was more spontaneous, didn't have any structure, but that's how they connect, right? We saw prayer and korbanot being connected. We saw that they complement each other a little bit. We saw that people built mizbachot and brought korbanot more out of gratitude, but the spontaneous prayer kind of came from a place of when people were in a time of need, right? It could be interesting to think about, well, if prayer is corresponds to both korbanot and to the avot, so what, what aspect, what point of view does each kind of add to our prayers, right? The, the, the structure versus the, the spontaneous. Okay, even when korbanot existed, sometimes we think that maybe there wasn't prayer before korbanot if prayer is a substitution from korbanot, but we saw today clearly that there definitely was prayer and people definitely did pray even before the existence of korbanot. We established that they're both methods of communication with Hashem, right? And we're left really with prayer being our primary mode, being that there are no korbanot today. We're left with prayer being our primary mode of communication with Hashem. Um, God willing, next week, we hope to expand upon upon the concept of prayer being our communication with Hashem. Maybe we'll talk about the different aspects of what what korbanot give us and what the spontaneity gives us. And we'll talk about different views to what our obligations in prayer actually are before actually delving into our siddur and the different prayers that we say today. Have a great time. Okay, I have a question. Do question. we know what, what the avot uh, 